This morning we'll be in Malachi 3, verse 13, starting in verse 13 to the rest of the book, 4, 6. I'm going to read out of the ESV. I'll read the whole passage, and if you want, if you're able, uh, stand with me as we read from Malachi 3, 13 to 4, 6. Scripture says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, How have we spoken against you? You have said, It is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I'll spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Amen. You may be seated. Our Father and God, we pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word, that your spirit would be active within us and among us, making what is heard and what is read alive in us, that we might respond and worship you, for you are worthy. We pray, Lord, for those in children's church the seeds of the gospel would be planted in their hearts. And they would grow and thrive. May you be Lord among us. Amen. Do you ever find yourself doing pointless things? Uh, I'm going to confess something. I'm not proud of this, but this is something I found myself doing and caught myself Uh, closing Twitter on the computer screen and opening it up on my phone to see maybe what other Twitter has something more interesting. It probably doesn't speak to health with social media 
Um, but the cousin of that is opening up your refrigerator door multiple times, hoping new food pops up. <laughs> and I know just about everybody in the room has done that. Maybe by some magic. It, similar to that also is pressing the crosswalk button multiple times or the elevator button. We have a new elevator. Maybe you've done that. Do it multiple times. And this is a little bit of an older thing. So kids, your parents and grandparents may have done this, maybe still do this. A channel surfing. It's a thing of the past where you sit before the TV and just go through all the channels hoping that something good might be on. It's never there. And even if you find something good, you're just going to keep scrolling past. Maybe we do that on YouTube now, something similar. These are pointless things. What's the point of these things? Why do we do what we do? That's the question I want to ask this morning. Now, as I was meditating on this, I realized this is probably the most important question you could ask yourself and I could ask you. This is a fundamental question, not just for us this morning, but for all of life. The question of why do we do what we do, and I want to put it this way, in a very simple question. Three words. Why worship God? I think it's an incredibly important question. And one that every one of us must answer. Why worship God? You may not have asked that direct question in those words, but I'm sure you've asked it. We ask every Sunday morning when we get up and come to church. Why am I doing this? We can be honest. There are times where we don't feel like it. I think every one of us feels that. Why am I going today? You know, last week I came and I didn't get anything out of the sermon. I was distracted during the songs. Uh, My own kids were not paying attention. And then somebody said something weird or mean to me in the hall and I left. And I was more discouraged than when I came in. Why did I even go? What's the point? Why worship on a Sunday morning when we could be doing so many other wonderful things? There are lakes to be at. There are brunches to eat. Why be here? We could be on vacation. We could be getting sleep. We could be doing what so many other are doing, which is far more important, working, stressing, over our finances and our money. Why do that? Or why do this when we could be doing those other wonderful things? And you say, well, no, no, we don't question that. Well, I know you question that because you're not here every Sunday. So apparently there are Sundays where you wake up and you say, ah, I don't feel like it today. I don't see the point in it. And this is a bigger question than just about Sunday morning. This is a question for all of life, right? This is a whole life question. Why worship God, not just on Sunday morning, but for your whole life? Why worship the Lord with your life? Why do it? Why do it when things go bad? Why worship God when you get the hard news from the doctor that you didn't want to hear, but you hear it anyways? And you say, well, Lord, I've given you all my praise and all my time, and this is how you repay me. Why worship God? Why worship God when you've raised your kids in the church, you've done everything you're supposed to do, you took them to church, you read the Bible with them, and they end up walking away in the end, and it seems to have made no difference at all in their lives. Why did I worship God? Why worship God when you're unemployed, when you're fired, and when you're struggling with money, and those around you who are not Christians, do not worship the Lord, they live their lives evil and wicked ways, and they're prospering, and they're 
making all sorts of money. You're saying, why am I doing this on Sunday morning? What is the point of all this worship? What's the point of worship when you, by your worship, are living a celibate single life and you're not going out and partying and doing all the things that your neighbors are doing, but they seem to be having way more fun and you're not having any fun. And why worship God then? Why worship God? When it seems like it makes no practical benefit to you. That's the question being asked by the Israelites in Malachi. What has been the benefit of all of our life of worship to you, God? It's a question they asked. They didn't see any benefit in living a life of worship. The pagans, the non-Jews around them, seemed to be having just as good lives, if not better. They were not advantaged by their worship in their eyes. So they're asking, why worship God? That's the question of this closing section, this last section in the book of Malachi. Malachi is broken up into six oracles or six really disputes between God and his people. The people have a problem or God has a problem and God has a word for them. This is the last of those words. And it answers the question, why worship God? We'll see that question is raised in verses 13 through 15. Look at verse 13 with me. See how they raise this question. It says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. God says to Israel, your words have been hard against me. What he's saying is, you have opposed me. You've been against me with your words. And they say, how? How have we been against you? Because you said, it is vain to serve God. It is useless, it is pointless, this activity of serving God. In keeping his charge or walking mournfully before him, in obeying God and in repenting and lamenting, mourning over sins, and in all these things, the stuff of worship, obedience, repentance, in all of this, the people say it's been no advantage. Meanwhile, those who have not worshipped God are blessed. The arrogant, the evil. Those who test God, who oppose him, they escape. You do nothing, God. It's a question of God's goodness to them. It's based on, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, there's a chapter in your Bibles, Deuteronomy 28, there's a covenant, an agreement that God made with his people through Moses, who gave the Ten Commandments. And in this covenant, in this agreement, Deuteronomy 28 lays out that those who, in Israel, those who obey God and follow in his ways are blessed, and those who oppose him are cursed. And Deuteronomy 28 lays out those blessings and those curses. And here, the people of Israel are saying, God, you're not doing it. You're not keeping your end of the bargain. You're not being true to your covenant. You said you were going to curse the evil. You have blessed the good. Well, here we are, and you're not blessing us. 
There has been no advantage to our worship. You don't treat anyone differently. You don't make a distinction between good and evil, between your people and not your people. This has done us no good, this worship. And I hope by now, as you've meditated on this for a few moments, you can see the selfishness of the question or the objection to God. Because what are they basically asking? They're asking, what's in it for me? Imagine you with kids, you give your child a job to do at home. Please go unload the dishwasher. And they respond, what's in it for me? How's that going to go? Even if you ask a friend at work, hey, could you cover for me? Could you do something for me? And the person says, well, what's in it for me? And you say, well, boy, I thought we had a better relationship than that. When somebody says, well, what's in it for me? Uh, Immediately, you know, that's a selfish question. That's a selfish heart. That's not a heart that wants to serve the other person. That's a heart that says, well, what am I going to get out of this? That's a, there's no love in that relationship or in that moment. What's in it for me? What's the point of serving God? Have you ever wondered why we call it a worship service? Like, have you ever just stopped to think about that for a moment? We call what we do on Sunday as we gather a worship service. In fact, the word liturgy comes from the Greek word liturgeo, which means work of the public, or service of the public, or a public service. As we go through the liturgy of our worship, it's a service. Now, okay, we've established, we come here and participate in a service. Now the question is, who is being served? And who's doing the serving? You might think, and I think the way we often act, is if we come to the service and then the people on stage and the leaders serve us. And that's how we evaluate our worship service. How were we served? How were we fed? Did I enjoy what I experienced? We do this when we're shopping for churches. Let's see, which of these meets all my tastes? But who is the service for? The service is not for us. It is a worship service. We are serving God. We come to serve him. That's the definition of worship. We come together to give him praise. It is not about, what can I get out of this? It is about, how can I serve the living God who is worthy of my praise? So as I'm thinking about where am I going to be at church? Where can I worship the Lord and serve him? Where has he called me to do that? The orientation that says what's in it for me is the opposite of worship. Worship asks, how can I praise God? But these... Uh, Israelites, they ask the selfish question. What's in it for me? What's the point? There is no point in this. So God will answer. And God is gracious enough to give them an answer. You ask, why worship God? God responds. And through the rest of this book, I think he's going to give three responses to that fundamental question. Why worship God? 
I think there are three responses he gives. First, in verses 16 through 18, the first answer, why worship God? Because God recognizes his people. That's what's going on in verses 16 through 18. God recognizes his people. What do I mean by that? Well, look at verse 16. And those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I'll spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Do you like to be recognized? Maybe in certain contexts and situations we don't want people to see us. But overall, in general, we have a fundamental human need to be recognized, to be seen, to be known. For someone to notice us and to say, good job. Or we have a desire to hear from our spouse, I love you, I adore you, I enjoy being around you. There are probably some among us in this room who would give anything to hear our parents say once again, I'm proud of you. And maybe you never heard that. But we have this fundamental desire to be known, to be recognized. It's behind competition. Behind competition, whether it be in sports, arts, cooking, Whatever it is that we we put our hearts towards, we want somebody to notice, hey, you're doing that well. Nobody frowns while receiving a trophy. That's a happy moment. Why do we smile? Because somebody noticed us, somebody recognized us. And I believe that is a fundamental, God-given thing that we all want to be recognized or known some way or another. And some of us are behind-the-scenes people and we don't want to be on stage. But that's not what I'm talking about. All of us want to be known to be loved. And what God is saying here is, I will recognize my people. I will know who my people are. Because there's this remnant, even in as unfaithful as the Israelites had been, there's always a remnant. There, there's a few who are still worshiping the Lord, who still fear his name, and God sees them, he says. I see them and I hear them. And what he does is, he, there's a book of remembrance written before him. And we were just talking about this. We just so happened uh, to be going through Esther this morning in our Sunday school class. And those who are in that class will know how funny that phrase is. Just so happened uh, to be going through Esther this morning. And the portion that talks about the book of remembrance the king read. In ancient empires, kings in Israel, kings would keep a record of all the things done in their reign. People would write down, here are the major events of their rule on their reign. So that was a common thing that ancient empires and ancient kings did, have a book of remembrance, a book of records of what had happened during their reign. And here is God having a book written before him, maybe not of the amazing events, but a book of the people he loves the people who are his. This book will come back in Revelation as the Lamb's book of life. And those whose names are written in it are the people that will be with God forever in heaven. He recognizes his people. And notice what it says. 
he will spare them. As a father spares his son who serves him. An important phrase. Because who are these people that God recognizes? They're not perfect. How do you get on this list of people that God knows and loves? He recognizes. It is not by perfection. No one is perfect. These people aren't perfect. God has to spare them, which implies that they could fall under judgment. But they won't. Though they are imperfect, though they are sinful, though they could be judged, God will spare them and be merciful towards them. Why? Well, because they love and worship him, not because they're perfect. There's a word for you who, who wonder, like, can I be part of the people of God? Can I worship him? Is he going to like light me up as soon as I try and sing praises to him because I'm not worthy? Look at what it says. God will spare those who worship him. You don't have to be perfect. That's not the requirement. None of us are. It's just come and worship. Come and worship the God who spares his people. And in that day, when God spares his people who worship him, there will be a distinguishment, a a discernment, a dividing line between those who fear him and those who don't. So the people of Israel said, God, you make no difference between the evil and the just, between the wicked and the good. There's no point in worshiping you. And here's how God answers. No, there is a point. You'll see the difference between those who worship me and those who don't. In that day, the day is coming, you will see that I recognize my people. Why worship God? Because he recognizes his people and will affirm them and love them as his own treasured possession, the people he loves. Why worship God? That's the first answer, because God recognizes his people. Second... Because God judges the world. God judges the world. We might ask you, when is this sparing going to happen? When is it that God is going to recognize his people? We find out in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. God judges the world. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Are you familiar with the song, This is the day... This is the day that the Lord has made. Somebody actually sent me that text this morning. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. What is this day? God has made all days, but there's one day that God really made. (laughs) There's one day that God has appointed, a special day, a, a particular day that is coming that this passage is looking forward to. It is known in the Old Testament as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, it is the day when the Lord will come in judgment and salvation of his people. Listen to Joel 2, 1. From the book of Joel, chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. It's a warning. The day of the Lord's coming. Be alerted. Or Zechariah 14, 12 and 13. 
And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them. The Old Testament and the prophets especially repeatedly talk about this day coming when the Lord will finally visit this world in judgment. And right now, Malachi says, the oven's burning. It's preheating. In that time, an oven would basically be usually built into the ground and it'd kind of be like a pot with clay walls on the side and stones in the bottom. You put the fire in the bottom and it would heat up the clay walls around it. That would be hotter than an open flame to have that oven. So I would invite you the next time you're grilling or bringing your smoker to temperature, just be reminded of this. The oven's burning. Things are heating up. We're getting closer and closer to the day of the Lord. Now grilling can be a sanctified act for you as you prepare your heart for God's coming. And that day when it's fully hot, all the enemies of God will be destroyed. This picture is total. Look at it. Neither root nor branch left. All of it destroyed. Continuing to think about what we do in our backyard, if your backyard is like mine, you've got a weed problem. And sometimes there there are places that are just so overgrown with weeds that the best course of action is just to nuke it, right? So you get Roundup. And Roundup just indiscriminately just kills everything in its path. That's what it'll be like for the enemies of the Lord on that day. Is a total destruction, nothing left, all wiped out. Anybody who stands opposed to God in that day that is coming will be destroyed completely. And you say, well, that doesn't sound very Christ-like or very merciful. I don't know if Jesus would say anything like that. And I'd say, well, as it turns out, listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 3.10. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In the word of Jesus, every tree that does not bear good fruit, that does not live a life of worship to God, cut down, thrown into the fire. It says a couple of verses later, in verse 12 of Matthew 3, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Jesus himself teaches that the day of the Lord will be a day of destruction for all those who do not worship and love God. The day of the Lord will also be a day of healing for those who worship him. There's a plant that grows called the foxglove. I don't know much about it. But it is a plant that has been used for medicinal purposes. It's used in medicine, especially for heart medicine, for helping treat uh, blood circulation, heart failure, heart rhythm. Foxglove has been used in medicine that treats the heart. 
At the same time, foxglove is poisonous. If you touch it, handle it, ingest it, it can cause dizziness, confusion, nausea, vomiting, even heart failure in some cases. It's this plant that brings both destruction and healing, and that's how the day of the Lord will be. When the Lord comes to his people and judges the world, it'll be a day of total destruction for some and absolute healing for others. So the text says, like the sun of righteousness coming with healing in its wings. Who or what is that sun of righteousness with healing in its wings without going too far into it? I just think this is a blatant reference to Jesus Christ himself. The son who brings righteousness, who brings healing to his people. For those who know Jesus Christ, the Lord, it will be a day of healing and a day of rejoicing, even celebrating like a fattened calf. Celebrating God's destruction of the wicked. Does that sound harsh to you? As you read that, as I read that earlier standing up and as you read it now, it says that God's people will rejoice as they trample underfoot the enemy, ashes on the soles of their feet. It'll be a day of rejoicing. It's hard for us to hear, I think. Hard for us to say, how will that be a day of rejoicing? But you can imagine a parade after a military victory. Why do people rejoice after a battle is won, after a victory is won? You don't necessarily rejoice in the individual deaths of people, but you do rejoice that the battle is over, that the enemy has lost, that we have won, that there can now be peace, and that your lives are spared. That's a genuine, real rejoicing celebration. We may have a hard time with that, and I think that's because we don't realize we're in battle. Israel knew it was in war. Israel lived under constant threat of enemies uh, against powerful nations who were more powerful than them, who had treated them cruelly and wickedly, who they've been under threat all the time. So that when you tell an Israelite with enemies surrounding them, one day you'll have victory and your enemies will be no more, there's rejoicing at that. Well, our battle as the church is not against flesh and blood. We don't take up arms, but we do have a spiritual battle that we are engaged in. And if you are in Christ... One day when the enemy is finally trampled down and the serpent is crushed for good, there will be rejoicing. It will be a day of praise. No more will evil and injustice curse the ground. No more will wickedness reign outside or even in my heart. No more. One day the enemy will be done with and there will be rejoicing. It will be a good day. The day of the Lord will come. That is what is being promised here. And notice, in that day, you'll see the difference between good and evil. Going back to their question, what's the point? Why worship? It makes no difference whatsoever. God is saying, in the day of the Lord, you'll know. You'll see why you worship the Lord. You will see there has been an incredible benefit to it as you live by my grace and mercy and rejoice in that day. So how do we prepare ourselves for it? 
That's what verses 4 through 6 are about. It's how the book of Malachi ends. It's how the whole Testament ends in our English Bibles. In these verses, God calls us to be ready. We ask at the beginning, why worship God? First, God recognizes his people. Second, God judges the world. And now third, God calls us to be ready. He calls us to be ready. Verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. These are the last words of Malachi, and as I said, the last words of our English uh, Old Testament, and they kind of summarize God's call to us by using two great figures in the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. Do you know who Moses and Elijah were and are? Moses, the one who led Israel out of Egypt to receive the Ten Commandments, received the law, that Moses who led Israel. And then there's Elijah, recognized as the, maybe the greatest prophet, kind of the, the paradigmatic, the ultimate prophet of the Old Testament was Elijah. Why did he have such an honored place? He actually doesn't even have his own book, like Isaiah or Jeremiah. But Elijah has this honored place among the prophets because he, he prophesied greatly during height of the kings. But, and also, Elijah was taken up into heaven. Unique. <laughs> Elijah didn't die, but he was actually taken up into heaven. So the Israelites looked to Elijah as kind of the great prophet that one day maybe he'll come back. There was anticipation of a return of Elijah, who'd been taken up. Maybe one day he'll come again and tell us God's word. So Malachi, using these two great figures, calls us to be ready. How? First, by remembering the law of Moses. In other words, by keeping the commands of the law, by obedience. Here's how you get ready for the day of the Lord's coming. Obey God. We worship by keeping the law of Christ. In fact, we love God by obeying Him. Jesus Himself teaches us this. If you love me, you say you have great heart for me, you say you have great adoration and affection for me, here's how you prove it. If you love me, keep my commandments. I have an old pastor who used to say, obedience is faith and love gone public. Obedience is how you show you love God. It's not how you earn God's love. You, you can't earn God's love. You're given it by grace. But you show that you love God through obedience. And that's what God calls his people to do. Obey the law of Moses. Now, we are not Israel, so we are not under the law of Moses. But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 9, we're under the law of Christ. And we obey him and his teaching. That's how we prepare ourselves. And secondly, we look to Elijah, the prophet who turns people towards God. Sometimes one person, one key figure can turn a whole people around. This happened in 2017 when the Kansas City Chiefs drafted a quarterback from Texas Tech. Traded up, like a tenth overall. And they drafted Patrick Mahomes. One person 
who could turn everything around, and we have lived in paradise since, right? Like that. I won't call him an Elijah-like figure, that might be, but that was what Elijah's ministry was, to turn the people around. Israel, look for Elijah to come to turn people around to God. That's what John the Baptist is. So Jesus teaches us in the New Testament. Elijah has come in John the Baptist, and John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus, baptizing people so they might turn towards the Lord. Now, look at your translation. I'm not sure what your translation says. The ESV says that Elijah will come and turn the hearts of fathers towards their children and turn the hearts of children towards their fathers. And it kind of speaks of reconciliation. Which was challenging to me as I read this. Why? Because Jesus seems to say something different about interpersonal relationships when he comes. Right? There's a couple places where Jesus says, and I'm going to cause division in your family. And Jesus himself says in a couple places, mother will turn against daughter, father will turn against son because of allegiance to me. So in some places Jesus talks about, I'm going to divide. As some turn to me and some don't. So I was trying to figure out how to reconcile this. As, as it turns out, this might be translated this way. Maybe this is the best way of translating this verse. And it's just talking about general reconciliation. That'll be a sign that the people have turned towards God. But there's another completely valid alternate way of translating this verse, which basically just says, and the hearts of fathers and sons will turn to me. Completely valid way of translating it. And then according to that translation, is saying, the hearts of young and old, of fathers and sons, of people of all ages, will turn back to God. I think I might prefer that translation just by context. Either way, the point is, this prophet will come and turn people back. There will be reconciliation between us and our father. It's what the ministry of Elijah brings. It's the ministry of John the Baptist. And if that had not come, if people's hearts aren't torn turn towards God, he will come and strike the land with utter destruction, and then Old Testament ends. Kind of a fun cliffhanger ending, right? Say that, and then God's not going to talk for a few hundred years. It's an ominous way to end things. Be obedient. Look for the prophet who's going to turn things around, turn hearts around. And if he doesn't, I'm coming with utter destruction. It's an ominous way to end, and I think it's just ending on a warning. For all people, be ready for the day of the Lord. Be ready. Have your heart turned towards God before the Lord's coming. You may ask, how? How can I make sure my heart is turned towards the Lord? How can I make sure my heart is with God? How can I be ready for the day of the Lord's coming, for the day of judgment and salvation? How do we make ourselves ready for that day? Is it through religious duty? 
can't be religious duty alone because none of us are religious enough. None of us are disciplined and religious enough to impress God on that day. Can we make ourselves ready just by sacrificial deeds? I would say none of us are selfless enough. Can we make ourselves ready only by just uh, knowledge? By knowing the things of God. But I don't think any of us are smart enough to contend with him when he appears. We make ourselves ready by moral goodness. Trusting that you're pure enough. And when the Lord appears, you'll be able to stand before him. I don't think any of us want to bet on our own morality. In the end, there is one way to ensure your heart is properly oriented towards God, that you have worshipped him in a way that pleases God and is acceptable to him, that he recognizes and loves. It's a question of how do you be God's people? How do you become a person on that list, the book of remembrance? And there's only one way. And those of you who have been at church a while, you, you know what I'm about to say, you know who I'm talking about. But if you're new to this, if you're not sure about the things of Christianity, what I want to make clear to you is that the only way truly to ensure you are ready for the day of the Lord is to know and love and worship Jesus Christ. Because it's only by his grace, by his righteousness, by his obedience, by his worship and obedience to God, he is the only one who has done all of that well enough, perfect enough to stand before God in judgment. Not that Jesus is judged, but he is worthy to be. And only in him do we have righteousness and worthiness that can stand in the day of judgment. It's only by being united to Christ and taking on his righteousness and him giving it to us as a gift. And we put it on and wear it. And we have God's own righteousness in Christ for us. That's the only way we stand in judgment. So this is how you make yourself ready for the day of the Lord. It is by accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior who gives you his righteousness so that you may stand. That is how. And then in Christ, by his grace, by his power, we can worship God truly, love him truly, do good works which were prepared for us that we can worship him in a way that God accepts and live this life of worship that we are called to do. And by the way, we can encourage one another along in this. So we go back to the question of why worship God with our whole lives? Why worship on Sunday mornings? The book of Hebrews has an answer for us. As we see the day approaching, gather together. That's what Hebrews says. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So as we progress along, as we get closer to the day of the Lord, as we get closer to judgment, there should be an increased angst and hurriedness in us to gather together and worship so that we may encourage one another along to love God and worship Him, to know we are ready. And Malachi calls us to obey God out of love and devotion, to be ready for the prophet coming, to be ready for the coming of the prophet. How do we do that? How do we make sure that we're... Maintaining our love and obedience. It's by gathering together, by worshiping together. That's what it's supposed to do. That's what do I get out of it? Here's what. We get to encourage each other to love and serve God all the more as the day draws near. And when the day comes, we'll see why we worshiped God in the first place. 
because we're called to live with him forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we rejoice in you this morning. We praise you this morning for many things, but maybe for a couple in particular. One, that you have called us to worship you, to love you. You've not left us without a voice, without a word, um, or without warning. You've called us to worship and adore you. And more than that, you've given us the means to do it. It would be a terrifying thing if we were called to worship and then not given the means to do so. But you have given us the ability to worship by giving us your son, Jesus Christ, who was perfect in our place. And in him, united to him, we can live a life of worship and look forward to the day when we see you face to face. And hear our Father say, well done. Keep us to that day, Lord, we pray. Amen.